I want to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me this morning to Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4, and we're going to look at uh, parts of chapter 4 and also parts of chapter 5. Really, um, you know, there, there's obviously a lot that's here, but it's really one scene that's taking place, and I, I want to just kind of keep it together for us to see the unfolding scene that, um, that John sees in his, in his vision. In fact, Revelation 4 actually really starts, um, in a lot of ways, the, I guess you could say, the official part of John's vision that he sees as it relates to the Lord Jesus. Obviously, in chapter 1, um, he sees the Lord, and he, he describes him in the best way that he possibly can. Because he, he doesn't just see him as he did on earth. He actually sees him now in all this, in his beauty and his glory as the, the risen Lord who is exalted, who sets at the right hand of God on high. And so he, he sees him differently than he did when um, he was with him as a disciple. And so it's really an incredible you know, concept to think about. But um, so he, he sees a vision of Jesus and, and what he looks like, what he sounds like in Revelation 1. And then in Revelations 2 and 3, it's a message that the Lord of the church is conveying to the churches. So the seven churches in Asia Minor, beginning with with Ephesus, and then uh, to all of those churches in that area. And the seven is significant because it's not just for those seven churches uh, in that period. It's for all of the churches that has Jesus Christ as Lord for every period. So it has a message for all of us when we read that. And then in Revelation 4, he's taken into the throne room where he sees God sitting on a throne. And then he sees the Lord Jesus as the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And and one of the reasons we're here is that last week I was in Ezekiel 1, and a lot of the images that we saw in Ezekiel 1 are going to be reinforced here in Revelation 4. In fact, I I ended last week, if you remember from Ezekiel, the hand of the Lord is on him there. So there he is in exile 700 miles away from the city of Jerusalem, from the temple, Yet, in that exile in Babylon, in that foreign land, among all of the cultural decadence, all of the idolatry, God was there. And he was able to see God was there in a very credible way as he looks out and he sees this thunderstorm rolling toward him. But it's not just any thunderstorm. Because in the midst of it, he sees God sitting on a throne. And he really, what he sees, he sees a mobile throne or a chariot throne. And then when we get to the end of the book, we're told that there's a city that Ezekiel sees. Not only a city, but also a temple. So that's that's 25 or 20, 25 years has passed since Ezekiel 1 to the end of the book. He sees this city, which we would expect the city to be Jerusalem, but the name of the city is called the Lord is there. The Lord is there. Um, Then we kind of ended it with Matthew chapter 18 where we have this emphasis of the church, where the, the two or three gather, that's speaking about the church, where they are gathered, and then Jesus makes this statement, I am there. He's there, in the midst, in the context of the church. And so that, that tells us really what it means is that for the Lord to be there, the, the initial fulfillment, when we think about in the New Testament, is that Jesus Christ actually becomes Emmanuel, the Lord is there. 
And so when he was incarnated, when he took on human flesh, the, the glory of God dwelt among us. And, and people interacted with the Lord Jesus. The, the, the Lord was there with them. They, they could see him with their eyes, you know, in, in human flesh. They could hear him. They could interact with him. They sold all of this in, in the midst of them. The Lord was there among them. And one of the things that John tells us about Jesus, in fact, Jesus says it about himself, is that when he's passing by the temple one day, where everybody in Israel, all the Jews thought, that's where God resides. He's passing by the temple one day, and Jesus points to that temple. In fact, the disciples were admiring how incredible this temple was, and they were telling Jesus, look at this temple. It, it, it far surpassed anything the world had known. And Jesus said, I'm going to destroy this the temple, and in three days I will, I will bring it back up. And then John says in the parenthetical note that he was talking about the temple of his body. And so the, the idea of God being among us, God being present, God being there, the Lord is there, is in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Jesus ascends. And when he ascends, he sends his Holy Spirit to the church where the Spirit of God indwells within believers as they profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that God, the Spirit, indwelled within them. And then Paul tells us that our bodies, we are a temple. And Peter even says the same thing, that we are living stones. And so here we are, it's this concept where we, we see that the, not that the Lord is there just in a temple in Jerusalem somewhere else, There's this fulfillment of it in the person of Jesus Christ. The Lord is there in him. He ascends. The Spirit of God comes. The church transforms now because Jesus is present in his spirit. The church becomes that temple where the Lord is there. So we see more fulfillment. And then when we get to the book of Revelation, and it tells us about when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back, and he's going to dwell in the midst of us. And he's going to be present, and he's, the Lord is going to be there in a way that far surpasses our understanding. And so that's, that's the hope that we're, we're looking for. So really, in one sense, the fulfillment of what Ezekiel saw has been fulfilled. It's an already, but it's a not yet. Because we're still waiting, and we're still anticipating. If, if our kids were in here, they would know this word. We talk about this on Wednesday night. Wednesday night we'd be anticipating the consummation of all things, the summing up of all things, the consummation of our salvation, the consummation of our redemption, the consummation of the fact that Jesus Christ, God himself, is truly present with his church. And so that's really kind of the trajectory where we are as we're coming to Revelation. I just want us to see this a little bit more clearly, and I think it's important, especially in the context of of Revelation for us, uh, to consider this, because when we look in chapters, if we were to look at chapters 1 and 3, we see that the church is pictured in angelic guise to remind its members that already a dimension of their existence is heavenly and that their real home is not with this earth that is passing away, but the new heaven and new earth that is connected with Christ's second coming. And one of the purposes of the church meeting on the earth in its weekly gathering is to be reminded of its heavenly existence and identity by modeling its worship that is vividly expressed in chapters 4 through 5. Now, I don't think it's an accident that John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That's what we're told 
in chapter 1 and verse 9. And then it's emphasized again here uh, in our, uh, later on in the book of Revelation that he was, he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And this is the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, where the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And we, we meet on this day to commemorate and to celebrate and to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And so on the Lord's Day, John had this vision. And then we see that it is in the church gathered that Jesus walks in our midst. So if you look back at chapter 1 and verse 13, it tells us after he sees, uh, back in verse 12, he says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in garment down to the feet, girded about the chest, and a golden band. Now, if you look in verse 20, it tells us the mystery of the seven lampstands, which is the seven churches. And so what, what we're seeing is this really this emphatic, this emphatic idea that he sees Jesus in all of his glory and all of his beauty, but where does he see him? Does he see him up in heaven? Somewhere far and distant, away from us, where does he see him? He sees him in the midst of the seven lampstands, which is the church. Now, I, I think that's really important that he says in the church because it's really given us this idea that the presence of Christ is with us in a greater reality, a greater dynamic than it is whenever we scatter as a church. That we're going to be dismissed here in a little bit, and we're going to get in our cold cars and go hopefully to our warm homes and stay there until this all blows over. But as you go, we can be rest assured that Christ is with us. But when we're gathering here, he's with us in really a greater reality. So let me give you an example in this way. When Moses encountered God in a burning bush, it was an incredible thing. That he, he looks and he sees, this, he sees this bush and it's burning, but it's, it's not burning up. And then he hears the voice of God from it, telling him that this is holy ground. So God was present with him in a very dynamic and radical way to such that it, it, was, it was shown, it was manifest, that this was a different plot of land. He was on holy ground. Now, as um, Moses was marching out through the desert... He passed by a lot of bushes, didn't he? And everywhere he went, God was with him. He was present by a pillar of cloud during the day and at night, a, a pillar of fire. And so everywhere he would go, every bush that he would pass, there God was with him. But at that specific time, he was present in a bush where it was holy ground. Take off your shoes. Okay, so in, in that same way that wherever you go in your life, when you go out from this place, God in through Christ by the Spirit is present with you. But it's here when we gather as his church that he's present with us where we can say this is, this is really sacred, this is holy. We're meeting the living God today with our brothers and sisters in Christ who are dwelled by the Holy Spirit. And so there's, I think there's this emphasis here to say when he says he's in the midst of the church and he's not saying he's in the midst of the individual or the person. He's in the midst of us. 
So now I really want to, I want to emphasize that. I think that's important. But also want to clarify and, and, be, and let you know that he is with you. Always. And every time, every station of your life, wherever you go, he is with you. But it's here in the context of the church that he, he's really here. He's really here and he's present among us. And so it's, it is in the church gathered that Jesus walks. And, and I believe that when we gather for worship as a church, there is an intersection between the earthly and the heavenly. There's an intersection between the normal and the divine. In fact, I, I, I see this kind of in the same way in the book of Ezekiel. Here he is 700 miles away. He thinks God is so far, so distant. And yet as he looks up, he sees the Lord is there. He's really here. And there is this sense that when we, when we gather and we think about God and we think about the heavenly realities, we think that it is a, it's a distant to, to the very ends of the universe somewhere that would take us 30,000, 40,000 year, years traveling at the speed of light to get there. But the fact is, is that when Christ comes again, it's, it's as though that what is in some sense that is present is just going to be seen. It's as, oh, it's as though that we're in a theater right now. This, this is the theater of God's creation. The, the theater of God's plan of redemption. And behind the stage and behind the curtains, there's, there's where God is acting. And at a specific time, all of a sudden the curtains are going to open and we're going to see the divine realities. We're going to be able to see God and all of his glory and all of his beauty coming in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's really important for us to, to really emphasize and understand how near God is to us in and through his son Jesus Christ by the, by the Spirit. And so I want us just to, to think about these realities as we consider his word this morning from Revelation chapter 4. Now, there's a, there's a few things that I want us to think about. There's at least three things I want us to think about in these uh, two chapters that we're going to go at a, uh, a fast pace, so try to keep up with me. Uh, the first thing I want us to think of is the participants of worship. Who are the participants of worship? So if you'll look with me in Revelation 4, beginning verse 1, it says, After these things I look, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice when I heard was like a trumpet speaking, and with me saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat on the throne was like a jasper and sardis in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, and appearance like emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices, seven lamps of fire, which were burning before the throne, which were the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were living creatures full of eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, 
who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before him, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So there's a lot that's going on here in this context, but I want you just to think about what is the unifying theme that we're seeing here in chapter 4 and chapter 5. Is The unifying theme is that there is a throne. And not only is there a throne, but there is one who sits on the throne, and this imagery brings everything that is seen and done together. And then immediately it, sparks, it immediately it sparks the image of a supreme king who governs and judges. And then the participants in the throne room are important. It's not just there's someone in the throne, but there's also others that are present. And their, their identity is given. So one of the first images is that of the 24 elders who are around the throne. And they represent the 12 tribes of Israel and also the 12 apostles, thus representing all of God's people, both Old Testament and New Testament saints. And so the imagery here is, in a representative and symbolic way, the sitting around the throne, worshiping God, is all of God's people who have been redeemed by the Lamb who was slain. All of God's people who repented of their sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are worshiping the one who sits on the throne. And not only are these the ones that are worshiping, but also we see the four living creatures, these angelic beings. And we first we encountered them last week in Ezekiel 7 in a very similar way that they had four faces. They have the face of a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle. And in the Old Testament, all of God's living creations are characterized in this fourfold manner. And so the four living creatures then represent general creation. So all of the creative world is worshiping the one true and living God who sits on his throne, who reigns and who governs and who's orchestrating his plan of history. And we're told that the four living creatures, they do not rest day or night with their praise. Their praise appears to be ceaseless in the absolute sense. The 24 elders... Worship is described as falling down before God, worshiping him and casting their crowns before the throne. And the point of these participants, which reaches the climax, is when the number of those that worship are innumerable. So if you look in chapter 5 in verse 11, it says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the land he was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature was in heaven and on earth, under the earth, such as are in the sea and all that are in them. I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. So you're seeing this massive, incredible worship service that's taking place and it's all directed to God who sits on his throne and who reigns and who rules over everything and what it tells us is that the triune God Father, Son, Holy Spirit deserves absolute and total worship from all that is in, in heaven on earth and under the earth in fact one of the great scenes that we see in the Bible especially when we think about Philippians 
And it tells us that when Jesus Christ comes again, that every single person, every created being, seen, unseen, that they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Which means that even those who do not trust in Jesus Christ as Lord, that when he comes again, they will see him and they will declare that he is Lord and he was king. And they will worship him. And they will do so because they have no choice. Because he comes as a king and there's no way they can deny this reality. You know, it's, it's one thing for us, you know, we think about this especially in American culture. Um, we think about King George back in the 1770s, uh, 1776 when we declared our independence. We looked at, we'd go to King George and we'd say, you're not our king. But when Jesus Christ comes again, there's not going to be one single person that's going to be able to see, say, you are not king. You do not rule. You do not reign. You do not sit on a throne. We do not recognize you. They will not be able to say that. Because when they see him, they will know he is king. You know, I you know, just maybe just kind of think about it this way. A few years ago, I read a book about John Adams when he first met King George. And John Adams was one of the perpetrators for our independence. Did not like King George. But he admitted that when he was brought into King George's room to meet him for the very first time, he says it was hard not to see him as a king. And we're talking about this on a human level. And here when Jesus Christ comes again in all of his glory and all of his beauty, he is king. That's just reality. So, but the, what we're seeing here in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 is it's more reflective of those Christians, those followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. This, this is what we're anticipating. It's what we're looking for. This is really what this is right here. It's readying us for that reality. And, and how we should yearn and hope and ask the Lord to come so that we can see you and all of your glory and so that we can be united around the throne and to worship you who is king. Now let's also, not only do we think about these participants of worship, which, which includes the, all of God's people, the angelic beings, we see kind of the finality of it of this innumerable amount of people, ten thousands of ten thousands of thousands, worshiping him, singing together, and praising our great and holy God. And now let's just think about what it is, why it is that we worship him. What, what do we worship him for? Well, hopefully you've already come to some understanding of that. You see him sitting on the throne. He is a God who deserves to be worshipped. But let's just think about the content of what they are saying. What are they saying about this God who sits on the throne. So we see in verse 8 that the living creatures, day and night, they don't rest. I mean, it's tough for some of you to soldier through one hour of this. But day and night, they don't rest. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, I don't think that they just repeat that over and over again. I think that's just the content. If you want to take the, the unifying theme or, their, or, or just what generally it is that they're saying, this is what they're saying about God. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who is, who was, who is, and who is to come. So what are they saying about God? Well, they're saying, number one, that God is holy. 
Um, and this, this is extremely important. In fact, we read for our scripture reading, Isaiah chapter 6, that this is what Isaiah saw when he saw the seraphim. And they were flying to and fro, and they were doing the same thing, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And so they're worshiping him because he is the holy God. Now, I don't know, when we think about that word, I, don't, I just don't know if it really if we really grasp exactly what it means to say God is holy, it's to speak of God's otherness. God's not like us. And there's one thing that we, re- we really need to be very careful about doing is trying to make God like us and drag him down to our, our level. You know, sometimes we want to, there's, there's various parts about God that we need to, that there's tensions and that we need to keep in those tensions. We talked a little bit about them last week, that God is both a transcendent God, he is transcendent he's above all he reigns he rules but he's also a god that's very near to us and we really like to grasp that nearness to god we want god to be you know he's my buddy he's my friend he's right he's right here um and when we when we do that go a little bit too far with that sometimes we drag him down and we make him like us and god is not like us he's other than us listen even when jesus walked among us that whenever people came and they knelt and they bowed before him, he never stopped them. Because he wasn't like them. He was God. And he deserved that worship. In fact, there's a few times here, you know, John is like a lot of us Christians. He's very hard-headed. And there's a couple, there's a few times in Revelation where he worships an angel and the angel says, what are you doing? Stop. Because he's just an angel. Only God deserves worship because God is other. So, I mean, it, it, it really, when you think about it, it really magnifies this idea that the angel is saying, don't worship me. I mean, he's an angelic being who ministers in the presence of God. Don't worship me. Don't bow before me. Worship him. So it really, maybe in my mind, amplifies this idea of the otherness of God. So when you say that God is holy, you mean that he's set apart, he's unique, He's distinct. There is none like God. To say that God is holy is to ascribe a uniqueness to him that is almost incomprehensible. It indicates that he is set apart from all creaturely and corrupt. He is distinct from the physical and fallen world. It affirms that God is not like humans, angels, false gods, animals, or anything else in the seen or unseen realm. But we understand God's holiness. It is what makes a relationship with him so beautiful. Unlike any other... He is separated, distinct, unique, yet he delights in a relationship with his creation, more specifically those whom he has created in his own image. It is this idea that makes God's grace so amazing. This is part of God's holiness in that he is unique in his grace. And so God is unique, he's set apart, he is other, he's not like us, he's above. And yet this great God makes himself known to us. So that we can understand him. So that we can have a relationship with him. We also, is God's eternal. He's the eternal king. If you look in verse 8, the psalm that they're singing, the very last part of it, who was, past, who is, present, and who is to come, the future. God has no beginning and no end. He has always existed. He's timeless. He's everlasting. In and of himself, he is the very source of life. 
And he is the Lord God Almighty. He's the eternal king who is and was to come. And the Lord Almighty is one of the favorite designations of John in Revelation, which is referencing God's sovereign power and control over all things. But here, John goes beyond the Lord Almighty by using a more complete term, the Lord God Almighty. God's power and rule are absolute and unmatched. His eternality further describes God's power. In other words, God controls the events of past, present, and future. The eternality of God is actually expressed twice more. You see it also in verse in verse 10, where the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worships him who lives forever and ever. Has no beginning and no end. Now, how is the nature of God reflected in this worship song meaningful to us now? Now, I want you to picture the, the first audience who received this letter. It was already, it's been stated in chapter 2 and chapter 3 that the church was under intense persecution and suffering, which resulted in many deaths. At a time like this, it is easy to feel powerless. So the reminder of God as holy and all-powerful would be immensely encouraging to them. Think about it in our old times of difficulty where circumstances are beyond our control. It is encouraging to know that God is in control of all events of past, present, and future, even the difficult circumstances that you face. How much more helpful is it to think about the death of our loved one or about our own death and to know that the one who sits on the throne lives forever and ever. That when we serve him, when we give ourselves over to him, that we too will live forever and ever with him. So this is the God who John is privileged to see and in all reality that we have the privilege this morning to see as we encounter this same vision in the context of sacred scripture. We see who he is, this great and glorious God who sits on his throne, who reigns forever and ever, who is holy, holy, holy. He brings us into a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. So we worship God for who he is, this great and glorious and holy God that he is. And then the last thing really comes out of chapter 5 is that we worship God for what he does, how God has acted in the context of human history, not only in the fact that God has acted in creation, has created this whole world. Listen, as much as we don't like this cold weather, I mean, it really is a testament of the power of God. To, to just walk from my house to this church was quite a chore. It reminds me of my frailty and my lack of power and how God's in this. And so, but it's more than that God acts in the context of creation, manifesting his power but also for what God has done for us through his son Jesus Christ and what he does. So if you look in verse 5, we, in the, kind of in the throne room, and John is looking and he's seeing something. He says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Then I, straw, then I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seal? And no one... In heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look to it. So I wept much because no one was worthy to open the scroll and to read the scroll or to look at it. But think about the significance of this. They weren't even worthy. They weren't worthy to open it. They weren't even worthy to read it. And then in verse 5, But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah and the root of David 
has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I look and behold in the midst of the throne and on the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. Then he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the four elders, they fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you, have, for you were slain. And you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue. And people and nation have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Now, there's one thing I want you to notice here, or there's several things, but something that jumps out to me. And if you'll notice there, the kind of this repetition of this word that we see in verse 6. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. So in the midst of the throne stands a lamb. Now, if you remember, where does Jesus stand in the midst of? In his church. Now, I'm saying that because there's this overlapping here. As I mentioned earlier in the sermon, and I made this statement that I believe that when we gather for worship as a church, there's an intersection between the earthly and the heavenly, the normal and the divine. Jesus is in the midst of the church, and at the same time, he's in the midst of the throne room. I don't know if you get that or not, but that's really important. Here we are at this intersection where everything just looks normal to us, but there's a divine reality that's happening before our seen eyes. He's not just distant way out there. This, this throne reality isn't happening some, like I said, 30 million light years away somewhere. It's close and it's near as we gather as a church. So let's go back to think about what it is that he has done. It relates to opening the, scro- opening the scroll. So we see another scene that occurs in the throne room, which the scroll is in view. The scroll contents contain God's redemptive plan and judgment, which are described in the, in the following chapters, starting in chapter 6. So the contents of the scroll are related to God's saving action and what he does. The question is asked regarding who is worthy to open the scroll and loose the seals. The most obvious answer is that God himself is worthy to open the scroll, as noted by his worth in chapter 4. But God is looking for someone to execute the contents of the scroll, namely his plan of redemption and judgment. John is in despair because he can't, he's not seen anybody step up. No one is found worthy. Now, he is in despair particularly because it appears that the scrolls or that the seals cannot be broken and God's glorious plan of redemption will not be carried out. And this grief must have been intensified by his momentary impression that even the Savior, Jesus Christ, is not worthy to unlock the, the book's secrets and power. Jesus, however, we're told, is that when John waits a little bit longer, he hears that Jesus is worthy to execute God's plan of redemption and judgment. Christ is described as a lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Ironically, Jesus is also described as a lamb, which emphasizes his sacrifice. It's not just any lamb, but it is characterized by absolute power. 
complete power and knowledge and his ever presence is, be, is before us. So there's, there's a couple of things that's going on here. Now, in our estimation, power looks a little bit different than a lamb. La- a lamb is not what we would characteristically consider as an image of power. So whenever maybe a hockey team or a football team is looking for a, a mascot, nobody comes up with a lamb. And there's a reason for that. But there, we're, as it relates to the kingdom of God, it's an upside-down kingdom. And so the way that you find your life is you lose your life. The way that you become the greatest in the kingdom is become the least here. And, and the, the pathway to power is through sacrifice. So the lamb that was slain receives all power. He is all-powerful. And he is the king. So there's, it's a, there's a tension here because he's the, the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David, signaling his kingship, but also he is a lamb. And then if you look in verses 9 through 10, where we see the hymn of praying to the lamb, just as the father is attributed as infinitely valuable, so is the son. The attribution of worth to Christ does two things. It shows him as truly God, and it picks up the theme with respect to the one worthy to open the scroll. So the basis of the worth of Jesus is predicated on his role in God's plan of salvation. The irony in all this is that, G- is that Christ's death became the victory of God. And it is the basis of his conquest. Death, sin, and Satan have all been conquered by the lamb that was slain. He was slain for our sins. He was slain in order to bring us into a relationship with God. The sacrifice of the lamb, the, the lamb has done some, something specific. It's redeemed believers to God. Jesus' death has been a ransom payment through which God purchased the people for himself. Not only are those who believe redeemed, but we're also, they also described as kings and priests. So this is imagery here that is used as magnificent. Followers of the Lord Jesus are purchased out of the slavery of sin and death and given the honorable designation of priests and kings who shall reign with him. As priests, believers serve, believers serve God in worship, in witness, and as royalty, we reign as kings and queens. This is a, an incredible reality that comes as a consequence of our salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, that we're we were in a position of sin, to, slavery to sin and death, deserving God's judgment. And now God has redeemed us to himself through his son, Jesus Christ, and give us a designation of priests and kings to rule and reign with him. That gives us reason to worship him. No wonder the 24 elders worship him and fall down and cast their crown to him. Because only God, in through Jesus Christ, is worthy of worship. And then the worship reaches the pinnacle when the myriads of ten thousands, times ten thousands, and thousands of thousands worship the land with a seven-fold acclamation. And they do so with a loud voice. They're not tepid about it at all. They're not mouthing the words. They're shouting with a loud voice, giving worship and praise to this great and glorious God who has come in through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the last thing that we 
that happens in chapter 5, it says, Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. And so these living creatures, that they're saying amen, which means they're, they're basically saying, yes, this is, this is right, this is good. This is what should happen. And so the amen does not just conclude the worship, but it also refer, affirms the truth that is stated. The glory and the worship of God and the Lamb is the main point of, of chapter 5 and along with chapter 4. In fact, it's the main point of everything. The glory and the worship of God in and through His Son, Jesus Christ, by the Spirit, is everything. It's why we're here. It's why we're living. It's why we're breathing out the breath that we, that we breathe. In fact, for Paul, he says, whatever it is, whether you eat and drink, do it for the glory of God. Look for a way to make your life an act of worship to God, to live for His glory, and to make His name great. Do that all throughout the week, and then when we come here together, we get to do this together. And we get to have the Lord in our midst as we, as we do this. And so this gives us a reason of why we worship. This is why we gather. This is why, even though it's cold that you're here, is because we want to come here to meet the living God. We can pick up our Bibles. We can get on Facebook and, and watch a live stream service, but it's not the same. All of that is supplemental to our spiritual growth. This is where it takes place when we gather together. Because here we are at the intersection between the normal and the divine, the earthly and the heavenly. The lamb who is in the midst of the throne is the lamb who is in the midst of his church. Let's pray.